We open your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would make your presence known to each one of us in your will so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we know what the acceptable will of God is for our life, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, God, may we find our satisfaction and our contentment in you. You tell us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite stories is told of a uh, fellow at the post office whose job it was to look at undeliverable or kind of illegible addresses. One day he came across a letter... And the letter was addressed to God. And he didn't know quite what to do about it, but obviously he wanted to do something, so he opened it up and he thought, oh boy. As he began to read, it said, Dear God, I'm an 83-year-old widow living on a very small pension. Yesterday, someone stole my purse and I had $100 in it, which was all the money that I had until my next pension check. Next Thursday is Thanksgiving and I invited two of my friends over for Thanksgiving dinner, but without the $100, I have nothing to buy food with. I have no family to turn to, and you are my only hope. Can you please help me? Well, as you can imagine, the postal worker was touched, and he was moved by what he had read, and he showed it to his fellow employees, and they took up a collection, and at the end of the day, they came up with $96. And they put it in an envelope, and they delivered it to her home anonymously and left it there at the door. And they were pretty excited about what they had done, this good deed that they had done, and as a A week or so went by, a letter came, and it looked like the same handwriting addressed again to God. And he opened it up, and he was so excited to read what was in there, and he read, Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you did for me? Because of your generosity, I was able to fix a lovely dinner for my friends. We had a great day, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift. She said, P.S., there was $4 missing. It was probably those thieves down at the post office. (laughs) And I thought that story is an ideal, an ideal introduction to the message that Jesus delivers as he continues his sermon on the level. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, where we find among other truths in this passage, what I call America's favorite verse. America's favorite verse in Luke chapter 6, see if you can pick it out as we read verses 37 through 45. Luke 6, verses 37, beginning there through 45, we read, And do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them, saying, A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they, know, will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. If you'll recall, we're in the midst of examining a sermon delivered by Jesus that was directed to his disciples. To summarize what we've learned to date, Jesus lays out in plain talk what he requires of each one of us, each of those who claim Jesus as Lord and follow him. We're to be humble. We're to be humble people who hunger for the Lord and his righteousness, finding our satisfaction or contentment in him. We're also... To suffer, we're also to hurt for those who suffer the ill effects of sin and the consequences of doing what's wrong before God. We're to hurt for them, to empathize with them. We're also to be willing to be hated by men for doing what's right before God. 
Be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Not living to please men, but to live to please the Lord our God, for it's whom he whom we serve, and he also to whom we must give an account. He went on to say that we're to love our enemies by doing good to those who hate us, even saying kind words to those who curse us, as well as praying for those who mistreat us. I got a call this past week from a young lady who's in high school. She called and said, Pastor Chuck, I'm just calling to follow up. I said, follow up. She said, yeah, remember you said that you wanted some input on, on the message. And I just want to let you know I left there that day feeling pretty good about myself because I couldn't think of anybody who hated me. Didn't think I had any enemies, but I prayed about it anyway. Began to pray about it. And as I was praying about it that night, Sunday night, I prayed about it. And sure enough, God kept bringing this one girl to my, to my mind. And she said, I went to school really troubled by the fact that God put this gal on my heart. She said, and I went to school and I was praying. I said, Lord, you're going to have to make it a little more obvious to me than that. And so she said that as she went about her day at school, everywhere she turned, this gal popped up. She said, you know, I could go for a week and never run into this gal. And she said, after about the 50th time I saw her, I said, okay, Lord, I think I get the hint. And she said, I went up to her and I said, you know, I noticed that you haven't, uh, we haven't spoken much since they had a, an election the year before and they ran against each other for a specific office at school. And the gal who was the one who called me had won the office and the other gal had turned her away from her and had not talked to her and didn't speak to her. And every time she saw her, she'd turn her head and look the other way. And she said, it's pretty evident to me that, you know, there, there's, there's something here and I wanted to come to you and ask you. If there's anything that I had done to insult you or to hurt you in any way, uh, or if we can just talk about it. And she said, you know, ever since then, I couldn't stand to look at you. And they were able to, in this time together, resolve those differences. And I thought, how wonderful it is, the simple obedience of saying, Lord, you know what? Show me, and then I'll act upon it. I've often said that, you know, all you need to do is ask God to reveal that to you. You know, reveal someone who hates me, and then get a piece of paper out and a pen and start writing it down. Reveal to me what you want me to do about it and how you want me to handle that. And God, I'm willing to be obedient because that's what I learned that you desire of your people. And is it comfortable? No. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Is it awkward? You better believe it. But you know what? But is it godly? Absolutely. We're never more like Jesus when we love our enemies. We're never more like Jesus when we bless those who curse us. We're never more like Jesus when we pray for those who mistreat us. And if that wasn't enough, we, we go on, and, and here's even more. And if, you know, you thought you are having a difficult time last time, I guarantee you, you'll be troubled again today. <laughs> and isn't that a wonderful thing, to be troubled by the Spirit of God so that He can conform us into the image of Christ? So as we look at this in verses 37 through 45, Jesus commands His disciples, in addition to what we've already discussed and we've already examined he commands his disciples to also be free from what I'll call the sin of judgmentalism. If you take a look at verses 37 and 38, we look at the principles that he tells us we're to embrace. It says, And do not judge and you won't be judged. And don't condemn and you'll not be condemned. And pardon and you'll be pardoned. And give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And here we find some of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in all of the Bible. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you won't be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. And this verse is, at least without question in my mind, what has become America's favorite verse. Some folks who don't know a single thing about the Bible... People that don't know that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. People that don't know anything about anything. When they find just a sense of any disapproval for their actions, they will quote this verse and they will quote it in the King James. Judgest not and ye shall not be judged. And you go, what in the world are they talking about? Why do people quote and misquote this verse? And the reason is very simple, because judging someone else has become the most heinous of all crimes. It has become the unpardonable sin of our generation. And I am here to tell you that that is nonsense. 
It is nonsense. It is not in context. It is taken out. It is distorted. It is manipulated. And it becomes just an endorsement for wrong behavior before God. Judge not and you won't be judged. In other words, let me do what I want to do and I'll let you do what you want to do. And somehow or another, that'll make it right before God. And that is foolishness from the pit of hell. That is nonsense. If you stop and think about it, you know, judge, hey, don't judge me. I won't judge you. Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong and I won't tell you what they're doing. And then you always hear this one too. Oh, whoever has no sin, let him cast the first stone. I'm saving that one until till we get to it. But, um, <laughs> but I got it in mind. And I'm just like, man, you got, you know, are we kidding me? You know, it ignores the many passages of the Bible that actually call for Christians to judge, hey, and even at times condemn sin. Think about that. For example, here in the same sermon, if you look at verses 40, uh, 43, 44, we're going to take a look at it in our outline, but we're told to examine the fruit. We're told to judge others by the fruit of their life. We're told to look at the evidence or examples. You know, Matthew 7, Jesus warned and said, hey, you'll know false teachers and false prophets by the fruit of their messages. You will know them. You'll be able to tell by what they preach will be lived out in the lives of those who hear it. We're to judge that. We're to look at that, examine it. We're to be, as I say, we're going to, we're going to be produce inspectors. You know, Paul challenged the Corinthians to make moral judgments. And in it, he argued this in 1 Corinthians 6 and again in chapter 5 and in 6, I mean, sorry, in verses 2, 5, 9 through 13, he said, don't you know that saints will judge the world. The point is, one cannot differentiate between right and wrong without making a judgment. A few years ago, I went to visit a guy who was suffering from cancer, and I sat at his bedside. And I asked him some questions as we sat there, and, and, and one of the things that troubled him about Christians was he said that, you know, Christians are so judgmental. And I said, you know what? I have found some to be that case. I don't argue with you. I said, you know, there are some who are very judgmental, some who are guilty of the sin of judgmentalism. I said, but at the same time, don't misunderstand that we are to judge right and wrong. There's a difference between right and wrong. And if you're saying there have been people who pointed out in your life things that are wrong before God, and you mistakenly believe that's judgmentalism, I'm here to tell you that that's not. And I said, let me give you a couple examples. Let's just say you're driving through a school zone and you're going 70 miles an hour in a school zone and it's posted 25 miles per hour. And a police officer pulls you over and, and, you, know, and you pull over to the side of the road and he comes up to you and you put the window down. And, and, and is your defense going to be, you know, the problem with police officers is that you're just so judgmental. I said, that's foolishness. I said, what, what, if, what if you, you know, have your children and you say to your children, listen, you know, lights out at 11. Bedtime's 11 o'clock. Lights are out at 11. And, you know, at 11, 1130, 12 o'clock, you hear one of your sons in there playing video games. Lights on, playing games. You go walking into the room and, you know, and you say, hey, what did I tell you? Lights are out at 11, right? What are you doing? He goes, you know, Dad, you'd be like a pretty cool dad if you weren't so judgmental. It's like, you know, it just falls apart when you reasonably and logically look at it. You know, there's nothing wrong with judgment. There is something drastically wrong with judgmentalism. And there is a clear case here between the two. Because Jesus is not condemning that, that we should not judge. Because he's going to tell us in the context that we are to judge by the fruit of the, the, the evidence of a person's life. So what is he condemning? He's condemning clearly a judgmental, condemning disposition. Those folks who like to judge for the pleasure of just judging others. And we're going to take a look at that. It's the sin of judgmentalism. And what is it? First of all, what I have seen, it's an unwitting revelation of one's own soul. Because people who rush to condemn others usually do it because they're condemning their own sins in the life of another. And if you don't find that to be true, turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where we see a perfect example of this in the life of, of, um, of David. God sent Nathan the prophet to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. 
And the Lord sent Nathan to him to deliver this message. And if you remember the backdrop of this in verse 26 and 27 that leads up to it was when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead and, she, and he was dead because David had sent him to the front lines so that he, could be, that he would be murdered. He would be killed in battle so that it would hide the sin of adultery and her conception of a child, his wife, through that of David. It says, and when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. David had sinned, had her husband, had this woman's husband murdered to hide their adulterous relationship. And so God sent Nathan to David to just tell him the way it is. Said, then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except the one little hue lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. I mean, you understand the story. A guy came to the guy's house and he said, hey, you know what? I need to fix him some food, but I don't want to take from any of, of my flock. I'll go take from the one lamb that this guy has and I'll kill him for my guest. So I'll take from that which another had, only one, even though I have an abundance and could have taken taken from it. And David said, you know what? Surely as that man lives, he deserves to die. And notice what happens. And he has to make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And Nathan then said to David, you are that man. You're the man. He called him out. It was a judgment. He made judgment. And the reason that that judgment was right is because that judgment was truth. He spoke the truth. That's exactly what you did. You had all these wives. You had all these women at your disposal. And this guy had one wife. And you weren't satisfied and content with everything else that you had. And you went and took that man's wife. And not only did you have an, an illicit sexual relationship with her. And she conceived a child. But to cover your sins. As is always the case with sin, we always look some way to cover it. You sent her husband to the front lines in the battlefield knowing that he would be killed. You're an adulterer and you're a murderer. And in our culture we go, hey, judge not, man, lest ye be judged. And it falls apart, doesn't it? It's nonsense to have that kind of attitude and that kind of frame of reference. See, judgmentalism is quick to condemn the sins of others while overlooking the same sin in our own life. And Jesus condemns that, and rightfully so. Once I had an encounter with men who accused me of being prideful and arrogant. And when I asked how I demonstrated a prideful spirit, they said to me, well, just like that, there you go. You're questioning us. I went, what? You're accusing me of being prideful and arrogant. And I'm asking you to help me understand how that pride is demonstrated in my life. Help me understand it. And the answer was, you know, just like that. You, you dare to question us. And I went, are you kidding me? I mean, can you imagine the irony of men questioning the pride or arrogance in another person and then feeling like they are above being questioned about it? Oh, see, I mean, I was like, well, how do you win that? It's like somebody accuses you of something and, and, and you're trying to defend yourself. And, and it's like the more you try to defend yourself, the guiltier you sound. You know, me think if you try to defend yourself too much. That's like, I didn't do it. And then yeah, you feel like, well, that wasn't enough. See, and that's why it's always a loser when you're dealing with judgmental people. 
Because no matter what you say, help me understand. If I'm prideful and arrogant, I need to know how. If I'm not submissive, explain to me how I show and demonstrate that type of rebellious spirit. I need to understand that because you know what? I can be blind of that sin as I can be blind of any sin. But if you say we're not going to tell you, it's like, you know, it's like you know, husbands and wife. And I've said this many times. Ladies, you know, if your husband says, uh, you know, it, you know I, 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 uh, that's what we pretty much say when we don't understand what's going on. And, and then you come back with that classic line of through the generations, if you don't understand by now, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> hey, if you don't get it by now, you better start telling them. It's like we've been married 30 years and you still don't get it. Well, tell me. I can't play this game any longer. You know, it's like that's how we get. And it's like, look, if you can't explain it to me, I'm just not going to get it. And that's the way it is. But with judgmental people, you can't even ask them anything. Because no matter what you say, it won't change their opinion. See, and that's why judgmentalism is so wrong. That's why Jesus condemned that judgmental people are often blind to their own sins, but quick to see them in the life of others. You're prideful, you're arrogant, but you're above being questioned. Are you kidding me? Acts chapter 17 said that the apostle Paul came and preached the word of God. And those in, in, in Thessalonica, you know, th- those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they examined everything Paul said against Scripture and they held him accountable. They judged his words against the standard of God's word. And did it line up or not? See, in addition to that, judgmental folks are often hypocritical, as I've just mentioned, of ju- you know, often judging others of you know, sins in which they themselves are guilty. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2, for example. In Romans chapter 2, look at verses 21 through 24. And we see that the sin of hypocrisy, and we see Jesus again talks about hypocrisy when he says, hey, you know, you're judging the speck in your brother's eye, you got a log in your eye, you're a hypocrite. Clean the, the, the log out of your eye, and then you'll be in a position to judge another. And here in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes and says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit it? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And and what he's saying is this, you know, you're going to teach people what's right before God, then you better live it. Ezra 7.10, one of my favorite verses, says this, And Ezra dedicated himself, he set his heart to study the word of God. He set his heart, he set it as in concrete. He, he put it in, in, like an anchor in concrete. He set it. He said, God, I've dedicated my heart to study your word and then to live it out myself so that then I could teach others what it is that I have learned from not only studying it, but living it. God, help me if I'm ever a hypocrite in what I teach to be true of God's word and not, first of all, apply it in my own life. Saying you're teaching others and you don't live it yourself, that's hypocrisy. You can't do that. He goes back, if you look at the first verses of the same chapter, therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment on another, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? What he's saying is, hey, you're right. God will judge sin. But don't you understand if you're guilty of the same sin, he'll judge you too? That's the message. That's what he's talking about. The point is not that we should never make moral judgments, but that we are not to be hypocritical. And Jesus will illustrate this in this passage as we continue to look at Luke chapter 6. You know, before looking at the solution Jesus offers to avoid the sin of judgmentalism, allow me to share two more reasons judgmentalism is so wrong. Judgmentalism, in addition to being hypocrisy, is also merciless. You know, it attaches motives to actions that have never been there. You know, they see others in the worst light, presuming the worst, disbelieving what others say, refusing to give the benefit of the doubt. We see others in the worst possible light. We read into everything that they do according to what we would have done or we would do if we were in the same position as them. 
and it's merciless. That's why Jesus tells us that judgmental people will be judged, condemning people will be condemned. That's why Martin Luther, when preaching to the people of Wittenberg in 1523, said this of this very text. He said, Dost thou publish his sins? Then truly thou art not a child of your merciful Father. For otherwise thou wouldst not also be as he is, merciful. It is certainly true that we cannot show as great mercy to our neighbor as God has shown to us. But it is true the work of the devil that we do the very opposite of mercy, which is a sure sign there is not a grain of mercy in us. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But his point is very simple. Should you and I not be merciful as our Father is merciful? And it's also trivializing. And what I mean by that is very simple. It views, you know, inconsequential things which may or not be sinful as of most importance. In a letter sent to the American Tract Society in 1853, the writer rightly scolded ATS for condemning social dancing and horse racing, but not slavery. Because, and there he quoted the ATS, quote, On no subject, probably, are evangelical Christians more at variance than slavery. This kind of trivializing condemns smoking, but not gossip, drinking, but not greed, social dancing, but not slavery. Are you kidding me? That's how judgmental people are. They major, as I say, in the minors, and they minor in the majors. They take that which doesn't mean anything except for to the person in their relationship with God and makes it into Scripture etched in stone. Listen, to him it knows the right thing to do, and to him it is sin. Those areas that are up for personal judgment then allow each person as they walk with the Lord, as they get into the Word of God, as they grow in their faith, allow them to develop those convictions as God puts those on their heart and don't tell them what it is that you think Scripture says in those cases. Question, as we move forward, are you judgmental and condemning of others? If so, you're certainly not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I hesitate, but I must also say this. And maybe you're not a believer at all. That's so judgmental. But that's what the Word of God teaches. That we're to examine and judge ourselves lest we be judged. We're to make sure that we're in the faith according to the objective Word of God... We should have evidence or fruit of our life so that others can see very clearly that, you know what, there's a person just like his dad. He's merciful like his father is merciful. See, Jesus continued by saying, in addition to an accepting, non-judgmental disposition, his disciples must also have a forgiving disposition. Don't judge and you won't be judged. What he's saying is accept others and the differences that you see in their life in all areas except those areas which clearly violate Scripture. And we'll talk more in a minute. Then he goes on to say not only should we have an accepting disposition of others, we should also have a forgiving disposition towards others. Forgiving, you will be forgiven. Jesus is not implying that a person can be forgiven for his sins, somehow will be forgiven. You forgive others, then God will forgive your sins. That's not what he's saying at all because the standard is this. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Our forgiveness starts as we repent from sin and we go to the cross We turn from sin, we turn to God, we go to the cross and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I believe that Jesus died in my place. He shed his blood so that my sins will be forgiven by you. He rose again from the dead. I trust in his death. I trust in his resurrection. And now what he says is this, for those who are born again, You have a new nature. The nature of God indwells and lives within us. And if we have God's nature in us, then we should also have the same nature, the same disposition that says, forgive others 
just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's why in the, quote, Lord's Prayer, which really was a prayer to his disciples, he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, God, forgive our sins as we forgive the sins of those who sin against us. That's why Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, once observed this, and I agree with him. He says, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. And the point is very simple. Because if you cannot forgive, one must ask, have you really believed? You have to ask the question. Have you really believed and trusted in Christ his forgiveness of your sin at the cross and been born again by the will of God and have a new nature that dwells within you, the nature of God, who is a forgiving God? If you know him and he's forgiven you, then the very easy, obvious question is, if you've been forgiven, shall you not forgive the other person who's offended you? How many times did Jesus teach parables on that? Listen, forgive as you've been forgiven. I read an article not too long ago on a paper. There was a team in Atlanta, the Thrashers, uh, one of their hockey players. I talked to some of the guys in Hockey Ministry International, and I have had my first couple of uh, chapels with the Ducks this season. And one of the things that was mind-boggling to those who know what had happened Two teammates were driving. The one who was driving was negligent. He was driving at an excessive rate of speed, lost control of his car. The car slammed into a brick wall, and and at the time, the car basically disintegrated. The driver driver lived through it, but his passenger, his friend, his teammate, was killed instantly at that And at the... Okay. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, I should have just prayed for help. And anyway, uh, through, through this particular event uh, at the funeral of this man who was killed, his father was quoted as saying this. He said, we have forgiven the young man who had driven the car. We have forgiven him. And uh, we know that he has a burden that he'll have to carry with him the rest of his life. But we, as his parents, have chosen to forgive him for the death of our son because we understand that nothing's to be gained from resentment or from bitterness and we'll pray and encourage him through this time. Now, I don't know if these people are believers or not, but I'll tell you what, it teaches me how much more so should that be your attitude and my attitude toward those who have wronged us. Jesus said, forgive and you will be forgiven. It's evidence of a person who has truly been born again. It's evidence of a person who has truly come to faith in Christ. It's evidence of a person who the Spirit of God indwells and lives within us. And Christ lives through us. He says that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. W.E. Langster, who was a pastor of London's Westminster Central Hall, wrote this said it was Christmas time in my home. One of my guests had come a couple of days early and saw me sending off Christmas cards. And I forgive you, brother. <laughs> How can I not? <laughs> I would be hypocritical. <laughs> he was sending the last of his Christmas cards and he was startled to see a certain name and address. He said, sure. A greeting card to him. I said, why not, I asked. He said, but you remember 18 months ago, month, months ago. And he said, I remembered then the thing this man had publicly said about me, but I remembered also resolving at that time with God's help to forgive him and to forget what he had said. And God had made me forget, And so I sent him that card. And so I would just say, do the same. A third principle to embrace is that all disciples should have a giving disposition. A giving disposition. 
He goes on and says, Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They'll pour into your lap. For your standard of measure will be measured to you in return. He's saying, hey, just give. And what he's talking about is a measure. They would take grain and they would put it in it. I mean, today we would take like a salt shaker or something. And you put it in it and you would pour in until it fills up. Then you would shake it to make sure every ounce of, of, of any air that's there that wasn't filled with it would be filled. And then you would continue to pour it until not only is everything filled, but you would give it to the person you're giving it to and continue to pour it until it pours over into their lap. And that's the picture that God is giving, a word picture that says, you know, give, and when you give with generosity, you give with liberality, you give with a, with, with a, um, with a, a happy or cheerful disposition. If you have a giving disposition, the overflowing abundance of God's grace and love as, uh, will, will actually come back to us in return. And the principle that's found throughout the Bible is very simple, and that's this. You and I cannot outgive God. Just can't. It's universally true. Whether you're a Christian businessman as H.P. Kroll, who was the founder of Quaker Oats, listen to what he said. For over 40 years, I have given 60 to 70% of my income to God, but I never have gotten ahead of Him. He has always outgiven me in return. Think about that. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the kingdom of God. You notice what he's saying? No one can outgive God. You can't. I can't. You know, can you imagine having a financial advisor who, you know, basically, you know, took 90% or 95% or 97% of everything that you entrusted to him? Can you imagine having a financial advisor that said, you know what, I'm going to keep 90% or 95% or 97% and I'll just give back to you 10% or 5% or 3%. That's the way it's going to work. You'd be outraged. If you didn't run and find a new financial advisor, you'd be foolish. But that's what stewardship's all about. Think about how we rob God. God owns it all. God gives it to us. And then all we ask in return is that we honor Him from the first fruits of our labors, that we give to Him first so it keeps everything in priority and perspective. And I know so many Christians who give to God last if there's anything left over. And I will guarantee you, if that is your giving philosophy, nothing ever will be left over because you don't have your priorities straight. Everything comes from God. And God loves a cheerful giver. You know, it's, it's so sad to me is that, you know, uh, so, you know, if you think about it, let's be honest. Why do most people hate to hear anything about giving from the pulpit in a Bible study or anything else? You know, think about it. Sermons on giving are often accused of being self-serving. Oh, I knew it was coming. He's finally going to say something about giving. He hasn't said anything in nine months since we've been in church, and now here it comes because this property thing, it's going to now, here's the way it's going to be. It's all going to be about giving. You know, it's always self serving. He's talking about giving. Listen, you know, and I know, if we're honest, the reason we hate to hear anything preached about giving is because we're not. Period. Because we're selfish, self-centered people who care about ourselves first and investing in the kingdom of God and giving back to the Lord and His work is a distant thought in most of our minds. That's why nobody likes it. And you know what? And you can't give enough to be saved because Jesus gave it all and it's all about Him. But I'll tell you this. God's people, His disciples, are giving people. They give and they give and they give and this parable tells us, and you know what? And you'll never be able to outgive God. Why don't you trust Him in that area of your life? It's all about increasing our standard of giving and not our standard of living. And I'm not going to avoid this and hide from it when it's in the context of what we're learning. I will not sidestep any issue because people are uncomfortable. You know what? Because I learned this, that if you hate somebody, you're uncomfortable when God says to love someone. If you're not willing to forgive and forget a harm in your life, it's because, you know what? You don't want to hear anything about forgiveness and forgetting. And usually people who are harboring a grudge or resentment, you know, the first thing I always hear about it is this, but... But, but you don't understand. But you don't know how bad it hurt. Oh, but you don't know how hard it... But, 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 but. That's all that it ever is. It's an excuse. But you don't understand. 
What, what do you mean I don't understand? I don't understand to be, what it means to be wronged. I don't understand, you know, what it means to be hurt. I mean, what, you know, what, what are you thinking that you live in a world? I'll get that. Is that God calling? Because <laughs> if it's God calling, I'll, I'll answer that because I don't want to miss it. He may want to, you know, add something to here that I might have missed. But you never know. When the phone rings during the service, you know, you better answer it. Or you better shut your phones off before you come in. Because otherwise, I may just have you come on up here and answer. Is I'm sorry, they're at church right now. Where are you? In bed? Really? Why don't you come with them next week? We're talking about giving and you expect that from a church, don't you? So anyway, back to the text. Why don't we pray about how God would have us to continue to invest in His kingdom to reach people with the Word of God and His gospel? Because you know what? There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved but Jesus Christ. See, genuine disciples give and give and give. And I'm going to ask you a question that I asked of myself. And when I share these things, I recognize the hypocrisy of it if we don't live it out in our own life. But that is this. I will challenge you to go back through And I will challenge you to see if your percentage of giving has increased as you have matured in the faith. And if it has not, then you haven't matured as you think you have. And all you need to do is look at your financial statements or your tax returns every year. And I want you to look at it. I want you to pray about it. And I want you to commit to the Lord to become more generous people. Because you know what? (laughs) Giving is self-serving. And if you read scripture correctly, it's this. You can't outgive God. And so the more you give, the more it will be returned to you. And I don't mean, you know, I, I see people go, okay, Lord, I'm going to give 5% this year. And that means you're going to at least give me a pay raise of 5 to 10% to offset the 5%. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, that's what it says here. And that's not what it says. It just says this, that the attitude or disposition of giving, you can never outgive God, and God will always give to you and return abundantly, if not in this life, in his kingdom, where he says he'll restore things 100 times, whatever it is that you give. Genuine disciples have an accepting, forgiving, and giving disposition, and the reason that we do is because Jesus was just that way. He was accepting of others. He was and is judge of the universe, yet he never exposed other sins without also offering mercy. He never delighted in pointing to men's failings. He did at times pronounce judgments. He condemned people who refused to repent, but there was never a hint of judgmentalism that he urged us to avoid. Further, he was forgiving. As he was nailed on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even when you and I were enemies of God, Jesus Christ came to this world. He took on and became in the appearance of man so that he could die humbly and obediently upon a cross for your sins and for my sins, for all who repent and, and, and trust and rest upon his sacrifice in your behalf. He was accepting, he was forgiving. And he was also giving. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 a passage on giving in 2 Corinthians 9 as well. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And like him, his disciples are magnanimous. They're great spirited people. And that's the very heart of discipleship. That we would be accepting of others. That we would be forgiving of others. And that we would be giving so that God can use what He has already given to us in order to reach others for Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. As we go back to Luke chapter 6, we see the parables that He used to explain this truth are very simple. He also spoke a parable to them and saying, a blind man cannot lead a blind man, can he? They'll both fall into the pit, right? He's saying that how can you lead anybody else? How can I lead anybody? How can we judge anybody if we don't understand and see clearly what it is that God is teaching? 
the Holy Spirit, for those who have been born again, He lives within us. He guides us into all truth. We need to meditate on the Scriptures day and night so that we're careful to do according to all that is written in it. We need to understand the Word of God. We'll be like a, a tree planted by streams of water. We'll have deep roots. We'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free, and the truth will set people free around us who are, who are caught up in the falsehoods of this world. They're caught up in a false gospel. I'm a good person. You're a good person. We're all going to heaven. No, that's not true. None of that is true. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. There's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and the power of His resurrection. We need to repent of sin, and we need to turn to Him, recognizing His death on our behalf, recognizing His resurrection, and responding with great, by grace through faith to the finished work and receiving Him as our Lord and Savior. That's the only way any of us will get to heaven, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the works that He has created for us to do before the foundation of the world. If you're truly born again, then your life will be evident to those around. You won't be blind. You'll see things as only God sees things. The Spirit of God will illuminate you into all truth. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He, was call- he has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is incomparable great power for us who believe. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. That That is what he's sharing here. He goes on to talk about the board, you know, the blind and the board parables, I call them. He says, and why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? I can't imagine. I I can see Jesus going back to his carpentry days. It's kind of like, can you imagine the irony? You got, you know, you got this big old plank in your eye and you're looking to see if you can judge somebody else. Hey, I see a little speck in your eye. And I thought about that at parables. I was walking outside yesterday and today and all this stuff's blowing in my face and in my eye thinking, wow, you know, there's this little speck, you know. And, and what he's trying to say is, look, you know what? The judgmental people don't see the big old log in their eye and they're running around trying to find specks in someone else's. How do you expect to see clearly? What he's saying is remove the log from your eye and then you're in a position when you're walking with the Lord, you know the word of God, you're living a life of obedience and and you're following his leading, you're walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Then if he calls you to judge another, then you can see clearly what it is that you're to help them to, to remove from their life that hindrance. The height of all hypocrisy as we see this, and we've already addressed it, judgmentalism is the height of all of it. You know, we don't don't see clearly, yet we're trying to find wrong in others. In verses 43 through 45, Jesus points out the produce that we are to examine. We're called on to be fruit inspectors. Back in the day when I lived in Pennsylvania, before we moved to California, I was a produce manager. It was my job to to look and inspect fruits and vegetables to see whether it was something that we wanted to buy to put out for our customers. That's what I did. I was paid to to judge the the, the produce that that was given to us in order to whether we wanted to buy it or not. You know, the world is based on judgment. We all are called to judge in in whatever arena it is that we're in. The only thing that he says is don't be hypocritical. Look at it. And what he's saying is very simple. No good tree produces bad fruit. Nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. He is stating the obvious for the purpose of making this point. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. What he's saying is this. If you are a good person, and good as defined by God, are those who put their faith and trust in Christ, and his righteousness has been imparted to us. It's not by our own efforts, it's by the will of God. If you are a good person as God defines good, then good things will come out of your mouth. You will pray for those who mistreat you. You will bless those who curse you. You will say things that build up and not destroy. Even when you judge, you will judge and speak the truth in love and not in condemnation and judgmentalism. What he's saying is evident and obvious. From bad trees come bad fruit. From bad people come bad words. Destructive words. Harmful words. Words of retaliation. Non-forgiving. Non-forgetful. Holding it against them. Keeping into account a wrong that's been suffered. How can I get even? Those ugly words proceed from a person's heart. 
And the question that I have for you is this, and it's very simple. What comes out of your mouth when you hit your thumb with a hammer is indicative of who you really are. What comes out of your mouth when you don't get your own way? What comes out of your mouth when you're cut off on the freeway? Whatever it is that comes out of your mouth speaks volumes of who you really are. And I'm always troubled by people say, but that's not who I really am. That was just in a moment of anger. That was a moment of time. Let, let, let me help you understand something. That's who you really are. That's who God sees. That's what He knows about you. Stop deceiving yourself. Fill yourself with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And then what comes out of your mouth will reflect that new nature that He has given you. If you do not forgive, if you do not give, if you do not forget the wrongs that have been against you, if you are judgmental and condemning, then I'm going I'm to beg you to examine yourself to see if you really are born again. And if you are, then ask God to forgive you of those sins. And He'll cleanse you from it. And you can move forward in a manner that's pleasing to God. Stop and think before you speak. What is it that's about to come out of your mouth? Is it glorifying to God? Is it, is, is it edifying to the person who's about to hear it? And if not, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let's think before we speak. So that what we say is a reflection of our God who lives within us. And the last thing in closing is, I want to give you some practical, a process that we should employ in those times in our life where God calls us to judge. In other words, how to judge others without being guilty of the sin of judgmentalism. And we'll put it all together with this. First and foremost, we're to judge people with a spirit of humility. We're to judge humbly. We know, but by the grace of God, there go you and I. And I have never looked down on anyone who has ever fallen into, chosen to, or do anything that's wrong before God. I don't care what it is. Because I know that, you know what? I'm susceptible to the same thing. And I always will sit down and talk and confront people with the spirit of humility because I recognize, you know what? I could be sitting on the under end of this conversation any time that I take my eyes off the Lord and I'll keep my mind in the Word of God. We should do so humbly. The heart is deceitful above all things. David said, God, you know our transgressions and understanding that you and I are fallible, understanding that you and I can also commit the same sin, understanding that no one's perfect. And any time that we take our eyes off the Lord and our mind's not in His Word, and in that moment of time, you know, the enemy comes and entices us with our own lust to do that's that which is wrong before God, man, we could all make serious mistakes. We're to do so prayerfully. James writes, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed in James 5.16. Lord, help me to go in a spirit of humility to this brother who's having a problem. Or this sister. Give me the right words. Give me the wisdom. Your wisdom. To share in a way. You know may I find favor in their sight. May they be receptive to listen to what it is that you want me to say. Because you know what. We should go biblically. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for reproof. For teaching reproof. For correction and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequately equipped for all good works. I'm not talking about judging people in those, quote, gray areas of our Christianity. I'm talking about going to somebody who is very guilty, very clearly guilty of sin. And you know what? And we can know what those things are because the Word of God clearly tells us. Adultery is sin. Homosexuality is sin. Fornication is sin. Stealing is sin. Lying is sin. I mean, we can go down through it. Gossiping is sin. I mean, it's very evident. Drunkenness is sin. Drug abuse is sin. I mean, those things are clearly stated for us. It's not a matter of, oh, hey, man, judge not, and you won't be judged. You know, if you want to do the same thing someday, I'll turn my back on that too. You know what I mean? You know, let me do what I want to do, and you can go do what you want to do, and everybody's happy. Everybody but who? But God. And you ultimately, because you know what? We're all going to pay the price for sin. The wage of sin is death. 
And not just spiritual death, but, you know, physically and everything else. You know, there's nothing good that comes out of doing what's wrong before God. So we go biblically and we go to the Word of God and we very clearly say, this is what the Word of God says. Are you guilty of this? Is this what you're doing? Then repent and confess it and turn from it. Turn to God. Trust Him in that area of your life. In those gray areas, you know what? Hey, then leave it between them and God. Think about it. Isn't most of the problems, that many of the problems that we have with one another are in those areas? You know, it's even in giving. It's like, well, yeah, I think you should give 10%. Well, you know, I think you only should give 3%. Well, I give 10% after gross. So I give it before, you know, before taxes. Oh, I think you should give 15%. You know what? That's between that person and God. But one thing we can all agree we better be giving. That's what God's word teaches. And it's a reflection of the fact that we're born again and disciples of God. But don't get hung up on it. What movie should we go to? If we should go at all, what clothes we should wear? You know, and I'm not going to say if we should wear any at all. No, but, but, but the point of it is, it's like, you know, it's all of that. You know, hey, get off each other's back in those areas. That's why unbelievers can't stand Christians because we major in the minors and we don't even deal with sin. Do so lovingly. Speak the truth in love. You know, judgmentalism is rooted in ill will. You know, while the judgment, you know, judgment has to have the best interest of another person in mind. If I go to judge the sin in the life of another, it's because I care about that person and recognize nothing good will come out of sin. Nothing. Nothing but devastation. Nothing but heartache. Nothing but consequences. You will not be blessed if you're living a life that's not pleasing to God. And the only reason we confront each other is because we care for each other and we love each other. Think about it. If you didn't love that person, you wouldn't go to them. It's just how you go to them will determine whether or not they're willing to listen to you. Go to them in humility. Go to them prayerfully. Go to them biblically. Go to them showing mercy. Go to them with love as the motivation. And the mercy, Jesus said it twice. And since we've been going through Luke, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Love doesn't delight in evil. Love doesn't delight in that which is wrong. We need to recognize that. We're to go privately in Matthew 18. Go to that person one-on-one. It's not about embarrassing somebody in a group. It's about going to that person privately and confronting them and that sin in their life. And you know what? And if you turn a brother from sin, then God bless you. Because as we, the last thing is we go gently. Brothers, if someone was caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Offering judgment is to be a display of gentle strength. If you feel led to offer judgment, but don't feel led to offer your help, then don't go at all. Don't go at all. Genuine disciples are not judgmental, not self-righteous, not hypocritical, not trivializing, not merciless. Such a spirit, I believe, has given unbelievers a wrong perception of Christianity. At the same time, Christians must not shy away from judging And to give in to America's favorite verse taken out of context. We're to have confidence in the moral standards of God's word. This crazy world that we live in and our culture seems to have at this point only one absolute. And that is that truth to them is absolutely relative. And that is not the word of God. In actuality, Jesus is our moral gyroscope. He keeps people on course and standing upright. The judge of all humankind will render perfect judgment. But best of all, recognizing our hopelessness and certain condemnation, he underwent judgment for our sins. He is not only the judge, but he's also the judged. And he offers us forgiveness for our sins and enables us to live a godly life in a world that is upside down. In an alienation to God. God made him. Jesus. Who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him. We might become the righteousness. Of God. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this sermon, the sermon on the level, this plain talk. Jesus never sugarcoated truth. He told it the way it is. To speak the truth in love, gently, privately, biblically, prayerfully. God, help us to become people who judge sin according to your standard and not be guilty of the sin of judgmentalism. God, help us as your people, those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ, his death, his resurrection, and received him as our Lord and Savior, genuine disciples, that we may have an accepting disposition of others, that we may be forgiven of, forgiving of others, not taking into an account a wrong that suffered. God, we know it's hard to forgive those who have hurt us, but yet you've given us the standard Be kind and gentle, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. How can we who have been forgiven so great a wrong, enemies of God, ever hold anything against another human being? God, may we be giving people. May we be generous and giving towards one another, more importantly towards you so that the resources that you have blessed us with, that we can return them to you, and yet you would use them and bless them to further your kingdom, to accomplish your purposes, and to reach the world with the word of God, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.